Well, hello. I am Brad Ellison. Hi, I'm Jason Paris. And this is Running a Business, 8 Mile After Mile Productions, Ask a Non-Painter Live. Why do the trades need another podcast? Are there enough podcasts? Everybody else is losers except us. That's Let's just hey. go about it. Uh, no, I, I guess I think there's novel perspectives. Uh, Brad, I think you're one of the quickest risings of a painting company start, you know, that we've seen in a long time. I have a pretty good company as well. And so those are just unique, unique perspectives that aren't always represented that we just see, see things a little bit differently. I think that we, Ellison Painting might be the only painting company that has uh, one of their core values as levity. Do you know what levity is? You do, because obviously you're like Mr. Smart. You don't know what levity means? Basically, I mean, it just means like lightheartedness, uh, not taking things super seriously. So while we yeah. obviously take our business serious, it's just business and it's just painting. But maybe if you, if you make a joke and I laugh, then our listeners will also laugh. Laugh with us, not at us. <laughs> so uh, my idea for this was, yep. at least for this this first episode, a series of questions back and forth. I ask a question. We talk about it. I get your perspective. I share my perspective until the conversation gets boring. And then you can chime in and ask a question of your own that hopefully you've pre-prepared. And uh, we'll just go back and forth and, and, and see what that looks and sounds like. And then future episodes, if there is a future episode, because you were very clear that if you don't have fun doing this first one, there won't be a second, right? Yep. I appreciate you setting clear expectations. And then so future episodes, maybe we have guests. We have plenty of people that we know in the trades that bring... Uh, also novel insights and maybe we can have them come in and they can make us laugh too. Am I interrupting your lunch? Yes. Yes. Okay. You are. All right. Question number one, is it harder to run 100 miles or to build a $5 million a year painting business? Depends on who you are. How many people run, can run hundred miles? Not a lot. How many people have $5 million painting businesses? Very, 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 very few. Percentage of the population is probably quite similar. Probably Actually, it's probably way more people that run hundred miles. Way more people that run hundred miles. Yeah. Cause there's not that many. I mean, if we're talking about residential painting businesses, there's not a ton that do over 5 million, right? Right. Uh, not Interesting. Three million is like when you first start to like actually professionalize your business. And then five million, you start to get a taste of stability of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of saying like, oh, there's not many stable painting companies out there, which there's not, right? They're mostly just lifestyle businesses, which there's nothing wrong with that. American dream, be a dentist, invest in commercial real estate. It's just interesting. This industry doesn't have many businesses, right? They have self-employed employment. Let me reframe the question. Does it take more discipline to run a hundred miles or more discipline to build a $5 million a year painting business? Probably the painting business. It's over a longer period of time. Man, I, I don't know. I would say I, would say I disagree with that. I think in order to, so I, I follow your training. I'm watching your runs and it's like every day you're doing an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and you don't miss a day, right? One gallon at a time. Right. And like, and your, your timing, the times <laughs> that you run, your average pace is not super impressed. But as I like to say, it's about progress, not impress, right? Have you heard that saying? That is very long-term, very consistent training needed to get to that hundred miles. Don't you think that if you wanted to build a $5 million a year painting business and you had enough money, you could just pay people to run it for you and it doesn't really take much discipline? There's you don't think so? That, no, there's a lot of things that you'd say to be so easy if you could solve that with money, right? It's like, oh, yes. can I just pay you money and you'll do the thing? That'd be great. You just can't solve everything with money in a company. But couldn't you hypothetically? You could lose $2 million a year and have $5 million paying income. No, but I don't think you have to lose money in order to have a five. I think, so it, say someone says, you know what? I don't want to learn anything about painting. I don't run a, I don't want to run a painting business. I just want to own a painting business and I want to pay people that know what they're doing, what they are doing to build profitable painting business. Even the profit is five percent net profit. Who's going to come work at that company? I don't know. Someone that wants to make some money. Like a guy like me 10 years ago, you could have hired me to, to build a, that a company and, and run it. Okay. To build. So it's like over a number of years. Yeah. 
for sure you can pay people to do that over a number yeah. of years. I thought you were saying like- But does that take discipline? It would take time. It might take longer than it would to train to run 100 miles, but is that discipline? Yeah. There's a million no, different ways not. to spend your money. I mean, it's not easy. It's not easy having a lot of money, Brad. Okay. I wouldn't know. You would. I don't know. <laughs> there's a million There's a million different ways to spend it. Consumerism is always tugging, saying, spend this money here, spend this money there. People that have a lot of money, it's a lot of discipline not to spend it. All right. Well, all I'll say is that I only know one person that has run 100 miles, and I know a bunch of people that own 5 million plus. Do you? Business. How yeah. many do you know? Uh, you. Uh, I won't count you and all your partners. Cause then I know like five, but you, sure. Jason, Jason Phillips, Kuipers, Elliot. Kuipers are commercial, but yeah, they're mostly commercial, they're not, but they're building up the residential as well. Sure. But they're residential, right, so, not like a $5 million branch. So the other JP, Jason Phillips, for sure. Yep. Right. Yeah, yep. Um, who else do you know that has a $5 million residential painting company? <laughs> okay, who do I know? Yeah. There's a company Brad, out east that built it over a number of decades. So we're all proud of them. Uh, are you telling me that my goal to hit 5 million in 2024 might be difficult? No, not with inflation. <laughs> not the, the way uh, inflation, hey. inflation is going. What would you ask me? You asked if I thought it'd be hard or realistic. What would you ask me? I said, are you telling me? Yeah, I can't remember what I said. R roll back the tape. Hey, what'd they say? What we say on the tape? Said, is it unrealistic for me to... Uh, expect to aim for hmm. five million in twenty twenty four. Yeah, I think so. Unrealistic. Cool. There's there's a lot of risk in that plan too. I think I don't believe I don't believe in realism. I don't know what that means. Is that like things are real or what's realism? I don't, I, I don't believe it. I don't believe in. Um, you can't you can't tell me what's unrealistic because I believe that there are no limits to anything. Yeah, I appreciate that. You can achieve anything that your mind. I don't know why you would ask me then. <laughs> Because I want your perspective so that I can can yeah. illuminate everyone on how wrong you are on some things. Yeah, I'd say it's the reason it feels unrealistic is I don't think you have a very wide base of leadership in your company. It's a feeling. So the number of roles that you'd fill with people, either inexperienced or new to the organization, is going to be a pretty high percentage. That's not wrong. That's a high growth company, but could be a lot of risk. It might be both, right? You might be hiring people like, hey, have you ever manage a team of sales reps to sell $5 million of painting before, people are probably going to say no. So that's risk, right? Because they're stepping mm -hmm. into a new role where they don't have proven performance. They might say yes, but then there's still a new person in your organization. The percentage of people in the org chart that you want filling one of those buckets, you know, that, that's kind of an equation for your own risk tolerance. Or you mm -hmm. might you might think of a new st novel structure that I'm not thinking of either. There's a lot of clever ways to run businesses and and you might, you know, you're a young, young soul. Soul, thank you. You're not young in age. Nope. Uh, you're, you're short. You have a lot of energy. Like you're not. Isn't tall. it crazy? I'm actually uh, among the older people in our circle of influence in the painting industry. But you're very fit and you're very energetic and uh, yeah. very open-minded. Yeah, you're more open-minded than most painting companies, contractors. So, But this, we don't really have, like I said, real businesses in this industry. Well, that was a life-giving conversation. So there's an article called Mana, Two Views of Humanity's Future. What are your thoughts? First of all, have you read it? Didn't read any of the articles. Do you want me to read it out loud? The whole article? Yes. Yeah. How long is it? Is it like 3000 words? Why don't you give me the cliff notes of the article? Because obviously anyone that's the, the three people that listen to this are not going to go read the article either. So why don't I'll you give put, us I'll the put cliff it in the notes? Link. Put it in the oh, link. Gosh. Give us the cliff notes and then ask me a Talks question. about basically general AI, the optimization of humanity, and it paints kind of two paths that humanity can go down. One is pretty dark. Like Terminator I, dark? Uh, kind of, yeah. Well, not that dark. Not that, not that slice of dark. Yeah. That's one path for humanity. The other is uh, you have a post-scarcity society where everybody enjoys abundance and free time, right? 
kind of like the two paths of how technology advances. Does it go to benefit a few or does it go to benefit everybody? Trickle down economics or whatever communism is. is. All right. And the first, the underclass, think, the underclass is controlled by the AI system <laughs> and it monitors and controls every aspect of their lives, offering them a life of comfort, but denying them autonomy and agency. Okay. Are we talking about like Wally, where they, they just lay in their recliners and get fat and everything is done for them? Right. And the privileged class, the privileged class is one that enjoys power and status through their work and control over mana. Well, the general life of leisure probably is very appealing to many, many people. They would probably give up the power that comes with working in right. order to enjoy what they perceive as a life of leisure even though it's really they're not it's not it's very enjoyable. Servitude. i don't think it's enjoyable though that's, that's a hard problem that's a hard to hard about it i don't know the people in wally seem to be enjoying it just fine they didn't have a lot of cortisol that's what you mean by enjoyment but maybe they did it is actually pretty stressful to always try and enjoy yourself sometimes when i sit in the sauna i will bring my phone with me and i'll try and find youtube clips to entertain myself and it's kind of stressful always look for a new clip or something or sometimes i just sit in the sauna you gotta let you gotta let the algorithms choose the next next clip for you man and just roll with it it knows what you want so do you think that the the trajectory of our society um, maybe in relation ai or not is moving more towards a disparity like the really the haves and the have-nots where it's going to become more uh more and more separated or do you think that with with technology and advancements that even even though there will always be that chasm that it it's really not a big deal i don't know i'm just a humble painter from flyover country but meritocracies naturally produce inequality mm -hmm. and so yeah. that's what we have as the levers get longer it obviously increases the outcomes it doesn't shorten them seems like the levers are getting longer but with shorter. the advancement with the advancement of ai automation technology there could be a point where humans don't even have to work at all and the mm. i guess the we don't have to work the, now the, the products we don't have to well, work no now. i mean we just we just want so many things i mean everyone can have food and clothing everybody wants microwaves and refrigerators and flat screen tvs and disneyland trips and we're all very selfish, I guess. Yeah. I we mean, should have some sort of um, basic, basic income that is provided universally. Do you really believe in that? Do you really believe in universal basic income? I don't. That it would be a benefit? Yeah, of course there are benefits to it. There are also cons to it, though. That's the problem. The con is okay, that. We, obviously, now, I'm talking about net benefit. No, probably not. Just gives too much control to the government. Just does. Vote no. Ding, ding, ding. Cool. Remember when Andrew Yang made a big Andrew Yang made a big splash on the political scene when he was that's what he was he ran for president and that was yeah. the platform that he was running on was UBI because yeah. automation is going to take everyone's jobs and the the people that then own the the technology and own the automation would own everything be yep. no way for people to earn a living so you need UBI to just uh, I guess tax those corporations to the point that they could feed everyone else yeah. There's some pretty dystopian late stage concepts for how it all plays out. Do you out. think that automation, uh, actual physical automation is a threat to the residential painting industry? Physical automation? Yeah. Like I'm not talking about like automation of marketing and, and, and communication systems, but I'm talking about robots. I don't know. I don't think so. Not in my working lifetime. Not in my capital accrual lifetime. Things can change on a dime. We saw that in 2020. Obviously, we've seen that throughout our whole lives. So you could get really like out there and be like, well, what if everybody just lives underground? Do we still mm -hmm. need painters? What? So what I envision, instead of robots taking over our jobs and painting houses, I see a more likely scenario being that housing is no longer built with materials that need to be painted. Yep. That, that can be constructed by robots. 
built, maybe built somewhere else and moved into place or even built in place by robots, but there's no codings necessary. Timeline for that is so far out for you and I to be mm -hmm. concerned about. It's not like I'm trying to banking on my kids learning the craft of painting to earn right. a living. You know, even if that started, it's kind of like the whole electric car thing, right? The amount of manufacturing power that would just have to happen to for there to be a turnover. And the cars around the world is massive and it's going to take a really long time, even if everybody decided yeah. to push today. So the amount of time to replace housing or to restock housing or to have new housing be of non-paintable substrates is not right. going to do. Except they do have those, they do have those machines that can now uh, build houses out of concrete. Have you seen those? Yeah. They build, they bring, they bring the machine, they bring the big robot machine the, and then it just basically, it's like toothpaste. It squirts out the toothpaste mm -hmm. in circles, concentric circles, and they build the house. We can put all... We can put the uh, the mana people in those houses. Let's let's go back to a, a question that other people might care about. See, this goes to something you were saying earlier about me having no leadership in my company. What should the structure look like for a painting company at different revenue levels? Do you guys have a model for that? At X dollars of revenue, here's what you should have. Paint by numbers. Mm -hmm. Just figure it out. I like that. It's more of a gut thing. Just go by your gut. Uh, it's, it's, but part of it's going to depend on the productivity and your tolerance for different people and different mm -hmm. roles. But yeah. Cool. I don't care. Good answer. Uh, what's your guys's top line revenue just for the residential painting? 10 million in petrodollars. You share kind of what your structure is? Yes. We're a little different because we're a holdings company. So we are able to fractionalize a lot of the roles across different mm -hmm. businesses. But in general, there's it's a board-driven organization. And then the CEO reports to the board. The COO or the president reports to the CEO. Then you have the CFO. You have the operations team. You have the sales and marketing. This is the, this is the classical traction model. Mm -hmm. Five key people and five key seats. I have no idea how many sales reps we have. I think we're at six or seven sales reps in Paris Painting. Sounds couple, about right. A couple of new ones started here in Q2. Probably a similar number for PMs. Mm -hmm. Maybe five or six though, because they're all returners. In the back office, there are three coordinators, maybe four. That's really the structure. That we so run. relatively speaking, if, if we're trying to do 5 million, you're doing 10. Mm -hmm. If you just multiply what I have I times two, yep. you're right. It's right there. Yep. So I've had a lot of conversations with painting contractors who are smaller and they're trying to grow. And what I told them, you tell me if I'm like misguiding these people. I basically tell them if they're not at a at least a 750, 750,000 or a million dollar run rate, that they should be project manager and salesperson for their own company. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Uh, it depends on how much money they need to make, right? Oh, yeah, of course. So if they don't need to make much money from the business. You know, they can hire out every role and just play shareholder and mm -hmm. have either a no profit year or a capital call year. It's mm -hmm. be like, hey, I own this painting company. I derive no W-2 income from it. Uh, and this year I lost money as an investor. I didn't lose money. This year it broke even and there was a capital call. I put 50 grand more. Now, most people who start painting companies aren't of that ilk, that mindset. Mm -hmm. They're like, how do I make money now? Yeah, the number of roles that they play, you know, $2 million is probably doing quite a bit. So as they're growing and they decide, okay, I can't do this all on my own. What generally is the first position that they would or should fill? It's, I always, I get asked this question a lot and Me I too. say it's totally up to the individual. What gives them the most joy and what is the biggest pain? Stick in what gives you the most joy, get out of what is the most pain. So for me, it, it was kind of the opposite of what a lot of people do. I got rid of sales first. I stopped doing sales. The That was the first thing I stopped doing. The last thing I, I did in my company was really that coordination ad role. For most people, it's the opposite. First thing they like, they try and hire out is all the office work, all the computer stuff. What they want to hold on to is the sales. Like the last thing the owner typically does. I don't think there's a right or wrong. It's kind of 
whatever is eating up your most time is giving you, but then even beyond that, it's really what gives you the most joy and what gives you the most stress. Those would be good guiding lights to which either hold on to or, or let go of. The ones who walk away from, I don't know how to pronounce this, omelas, 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 really gets to the crux of the ethical dilemmas that we face in society of how much, how much are we allowing others to suffer for our own benefit? We're about to get super philosophical. So this was the second link I sent over when you asked about what should we talk about? What are your thoughts? This I is think- a very short read. This is five pages. Four and a half. I think in general, people are hypocrites. I think that people like to point out injustices that they see that hit close to home, do a whole lot of moral posturing and virtue virtue signaling to try to make other people feel bad for decisions like um, not recycling aluminum cans, for example. Do you think that that makes their argument any less valid? If someone's not living it out, uh, it like makes can a, can a, it can makes a, me fat, less inclined to take their arguments or their convictions seriously. Can it, sorry, can an out of shape person be a good physical trainer? Sure. A person that's physically handicapped and paralyzed from the neck down could be right. a phenomenal physical trainer. But they don't themselves partake to what they're what they're preaching or, te- or teaching. Well, why are they not partaking? Lack of discipline. In, in, well, I mean, in, my, I mean, in my situation, they physically can't. This is like a good, uh, it's a good thought. It kind of gets to uh, like this thing I've talked about, about Expo a bunch where people might have really good ideas, but they don't have great discipline, right? And so someone might point out like, hey, this is really unjust what's happening in, the, in society. Yeah, but you also picked on, uh, you were also a bully in high school. True. This is a flawed person. Everybody's flawed. So just because people are flawed, does that mean that their ideas should not be taken seriously to if it's a benefit society? It's like, Maybe well, it's, not about their, it's not about their ideas for me. It's about their character and integrity. So going back to so what I was talking about character. before you cut me off. So, you somebody, know, so, so if somebody has bad character and bad integrity, does that mean that their ideas are invalid? I would say that their, their stated... Uh, conviction about it is disingenuous. And so I wouldn't care to engage much about it. So if someone's going to give me a hard time about throwing away aluminum cans rather than recycling, because it's bad for the environment, but they drive a gas powered vehicle or they buy, you know, iPhones that have rare minerals that are mined in, in slave camps in China. They, they seem to be picking and choosing what they really care about and who they care about. And so the, I just can't take it seriously. So you're not interested in people's ideas. You're not interested in exploring concepts that could benefit society. You're more interested in who is the messenger and how are they living their life. I'm interested in exploring those concepts from people that actually believe them and show a consistency in, in thought and intellectual integrity. That's interesting. Right. Right. So back to your question, I when I look at someone doing Olympic lifting, for example, CrossFit, I can I can look at someone in their form and identify what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, because I've seen it now for four years. I've seen the best of the best do it. Mm -hmm. Now, when I try to pick up a bar and I do it, I'm terrible. I don't have the coordination or I don't think it's discipline necessarily. There's uh, my mobility is really bad. I just, for some reason there's, or maybe there's just some disconnect in my brain where I, I know what I'm supposed to do and I know what it's supposed to look like and I can't make my body do it. Does that mean that I would be a, a bad coach because I can't do what other, what I'm trying to teach other people to do? No. Uh, but if someone was like really overweight and trying to be a, a health instructor and they're shaming you because you're going to Burger King twice a week, but then they, they're eating like garbage and not working out. I would not take them seriously. So it's the shaming part. Cause like a message could be delivered that say you are eating unhealthy and you need to change your diet. And that mm-hmm. could be, I don't know if it's based off of the messenger or the receiver to say, are you shaming me or trying to help me? It's kind sure. of like with the, uh, the recycling thing of like, Hey, we have limited resources on this planet. Every can that you don't recycle is an issue that we all have to mm-hmm. deal with. 
uh, even ethically. And uh, I say, well, I, you're just shaming me and you drive a truck. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to receive that, that, that thought. I mean, uh, it's harder to receive that message from someone like that. Don't you think? I think it takes an, an intellectual posture to say, to separate the concept from the messenger. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where I get to like with, uh, I was talking about with like Expo where there are people, it's like, you obviously <laughs> can't tie your shoes in the morning. You're trying to tell me how to run a business. And it's like, well, can I separate myself from the messenger and mm -hmm. say like, that's a really interesting thought. Most people are not going to take you seriously because you don't have discipline, but your thought is good, right? And if that same thought came out of somebody else's mouth, it would be taken a lot more seriously. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one that like benefits the most from this, right? Because uh, people take me a lot more seriously than they would <laughs> because I've had you know, some life successes. So I'm, I'm not like, but I think I am also self-aware of like, it's just interesting. But anyways, back to the, it, well, the if, if no, if someone said to me, listen, I know that I'm overweight and I eat Burger King every day, yeah. but also if you, if you really want to lose weight, you shouldn't do that. You should work out. Yeah. Great. I would take that hundred percent. That's obviously that's just true. But it's dependent on their posture. It's dependent on the, the, the concept is irrelevant. The concept is only valid depending on the pot, depending on the posture of the person sending that message for you. My willingness to receive it is dependent on that. I think. Okay. So yeah. let's pretend that Amelis, Amelis, Amelis is written by, you know, someone who's very whatever you need them to be to consider okay. this thought it's basically right so there's this village and everything is great in this village in this town everything's everybody has there's no want there is no need there is no pain there is no suffering except for this one room where they must put an innocent child to just live and scream and torture incessantly and uh most people they all know about it they never talk about it it just has to be but then some there are some individuals who decide to walk away from this utopian paradise because they can't live with that ethical dilemma that all of this well-being necessitates or comes from not just pain and suffering because life is pain and suffering, but the placing of a high tier of pain and suffering onto uh, a child. And so that's kind of the what the story is about. Is about. So okay. what, do you, what do you think about that? When you ratchet it up to that level of pain and torture... I think it's a different conversation than the one in general we have like, well, you know, what do we do about poor people? There's, you know, can we, can we solve that? And there's, a, there's a really famous book. Um, it's called the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar. And there was a guy like the main character in the, um, the second part of the, the that book is called Jesus. And he says, interesting. You know, so he's not in the first part. So he is, he is just not by name. He is just not by name. Um, and he basically says that, you know, there, there will be poor people always. So, wow. Right. That sounds like a terrible message. Um, it's, uh, it could be construed that way out of context. Yeah. Do you, should we, in with, with that context, should we, Dave Ramsey would like to have a word with that guy. <laughs> we don't dismiss the, the needs of poor people. And we should, we should be giving of our resources to those who are less, I don't, don't want to say privileged. Cause that's yeah. such a terrible word. I would say not, it's not just, uh, there are, it's not just that there are those in need that don't have access to resources, but that the well being, the extreme well being of the majority necessitates the extreme suffering of the few, Yeah. right? And so this would be more uh, akin or aligned to like the cobalt mining in South, yeah. South America, right? Where it's yeah. like, well, we want this technology that's improved all of our lives extremely, right? But we don't want to invest millions and millions of dollars of capital to produce equip equipment to mine these out. Mm -hmm. How about we just get mothers who have pregnant children to just work day in and day out, or, or sorry, mothers with their newborn children strapped to them that are breathing these toxic fumes. Let's just pretend that that doesn't happen. So I'm, sure, I'm trying to think if there are any other examples 
there's a thought that every dollar of profit is a is a stolen dollar of wages, mm-hmm. right? So you'd say like those who are living in poverty but are willing to work, majority, and that is actually not the majority. So you'd say that some are benefiting, you know, at the expense of their suffering, right? Yeah. So they're, they're forced to suffer the indignities of living in a, a society that is a, is a meritocracy, right? So it requires them to work to receive anything, but they're not receiving the due compensation of their labor. It's instead going to the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to answer these questions. These are, these are really, really, these are, this is the type of thing that I really do. Like just, no, I, 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 we should. We yeah. Because it's like, so ethically, if I'm in that village and I know that there's some kid chained up being tortured, yeah. there's nothing in me. I think that would allow me to let that go. I'd like to think that that's the case. So you would walk away. You'd, you'd be, uh, I think it's how it ends. The ones who walk away from Amalus. They don't know where they're going. That's another interesting part. They leave. They go on. They leave Amalus. They walk ahead into the darkness. They do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it all. Is it possible that it does not exist? But they seem to know where they're going. Right? They know where they're going. Yeah. They're going to uh, free their conscience, essentially. But they're walking away from the city of happiness. But how, how can they free their conscience, conscience if they're not f- also freeing the child? So this is the only way you free the child. The child is bonded by the necessity of the well-being of everybody else in this magical. This is not like a real scenario. So it's not like you can go in and, and free this child, okay. right? The only way to free the child is for everybody not to live in the city of happiness. Got it. If you live in the city of happiness, that necessitates there being a suffering child. Okay. Then I would. I, I don't think that I could live in that city. And you'd say that. Chi- now here's an here's another interesting part. That child's still going to suffer, even if you walk away. You're not benefit. So. Why not just take, why not just enjoy the fruits of all this suffering? Oh gosh. Isn't this a tough, it's a tough one. I couldn't do it. I would, I would rather not enjoy the fruits than enjoy the fruits. Even if the child is suffering in either scenario, I I wouldn't want it to be for my benefit. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's a tough one. And like you said, we're all hypocrites. We live in a globalized society where it's like, it's kind of like when Nike says like, I told those Chinese factories not to use child labor and Mm. they did. Ah, it's Mm -hmm. such so frustrating when they do that we all know like there's no way everything is so cheap and it's just or when professional athletes complain about the perceived inequities within our country but they're being paid millions and millions of dollars by those companies like nike and their shoes are being produced by slaves that's a little bit i would say that's higher level of inequity than anything we see here in the united states there's a lot of yeah there's tears and tears and Again, mm-hmm. to them, it's kind of like they get numb to it because, mm-hmm. you know, the people who are writing their checks, there's a pretty big gap. And so they're feeling like they're at the bottom of the totem pole. Mm-hmm. That's like the, that's the weird part too about professional athletes who are making millions, if not tens of millions of dollars a year. They feel oftentimes like they're the proletariat. Well, they are mm-hmm. the proletariat. There. Right. And they're there to benefit the bourgeoisie who is just making massive amounts of earnings off of their labor. Right. And not in comparison. It's like, well, we are millionaires, but they are billionaires. And so, yeah. Do you have an issue that there are billionaires in existence? Probably not. No. Yeah. I, I would say I would call you a hypocrite if you said there were that you had a problem with it. Because then uh, like, people would people some people would have a problem that you have as much money as you have compared to them. I know. It's the so worst. like you would. Yeah. Then your perspective would be like, no, where I'm at is the right place. Right. And anything above is worse. No, for sure. I thought about this because I, uh, I used, I used to, I used, I used to be on the streets, you know, living on with the tray trays and the gulags and. What and, is a tray uh, tray? The tray trays are the gang that lives on Thirty Second and Washburn. Is this Thirty Third and Washburn, wait, North Minneapolis? There's Minneapolis gangs. Minneapolis. We used mm-hmm. to call it Murderapolis back in the day. The tray trays were running, running over in that that neighborhood. Anyways, because I would think I would have those same thoughts. I'd be like, it's so unfair. You got these millionaires and billionaires, and here I am, uh, trying to 
trying to rub two pennies together, make mm -hmm. them have a baby to get a third penny. It's not working. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about me. And then I think, well, how do uh, people in South Sudan feel about where I'm at? Well, we had, we had a conversation. We had some friends over for dinner and we're, I want to buy, I want to buy this watch. Okay. And it's like an expensive watch. Yeah. I'm surprised. It's something that I've dreamed about since I was a little kid. I want to like, I, I, just, I, want, I want a Rolex. I don't need a new one. I'm happy with a used one, but they're obviously not cheap. No matter what Rolex you get, they're they're not cheap. But we're having a talk with, with our friends and my friend happened to be wearing a Rolex. He actually buys and sells watches to make extra side money. You know, we were talking a little bit about our, our finances and he just said to, to Rachel, like you guys are phenomenally wealthy. You guys are phenomenally wealthy. Now, are we... Are we actually phenomenally wealthy? Well, compared to many, yes. Compared to others, not even close. Point was, like, if I wanted to buy a watch, I can buy a watch. The wherever you, wherever you look, in whatever position you're in, you can either look up and say you can either be envious or jealous, and there's a difference there, right? So, and I've used you as an example. It's like I look at Jason Paris, and I could be envious of what him and his partners have done. Envy is I want to have that, and I want to be the only one that has it. I don't want them to have it. Or I can I can be jealous and say, man, I'm jealous for what Jason and his friends have built while admiring it and want want you guys to have it, but I also want to work to have it too. Yeah. So I wonder, uh, so like, is it ethical to have when others don't, you know, what is it, what responsibility do those, what responsibility do you have to help mitigate the suffering of others? Right. And, and what, and what proximity does it become real? It's like, here's like a scenario. Someone comes to your door today and they're like, Hey, I don't know you. You don't know me. Who cares a scenario? Make up a scenario that makes it real to you. My husband just died. I've got three kids. My car just broke down. I'm like, I've got hundreds of dollars in the bank and I don't know what to do. And if you could help me buy some food, I'm not even asking for a place to stay. I can figure it out. I've got a tent. I could really use some groceries. Well, like do you, and you are sitting here trying to decide if I'm going to buy a Rolex today or not. Like, is there an ethical, should I don't, you? I don't think it's an either or. I don't, could it, if I, if I buy a, a $5,000 used Rolex, does that mean that I'm then not able to also help people? Let's find out. All right. Or so, we'll, so do you feel like you should, do you feel like we're required to help? You should be helping that, that uh, woman who just got widowed, who's willing to work. She just mm -hmm. needs some groceries this week. I think you and I, because of our faith and our worldview, are obligated to help. What if she's not at your door? What if she like calls you instead? Mm -hmm. She's like, hey, I got your number from Rachel. I'm not at your house, but I'm at the grocery store. Would you mind mm -hmm. paying for my groceries? Mm -hmm. right. Here's the, So I'm going to like go down this curve, right? Now let's say like uh, she emails you. Hey, I'm mm -hmm. in Ohio. Here's my scenario. You don't know me. You don't, I don't know you, but would you be willing to help me? And like, like here's my church deacon or whatever that is willing to mm -hmm. validate it. And then it's like, well, what if this is someone in South Sudan, mm -hmm. right? And they're like, hey, I don't even have rice today. And uh, I could really use like $2. That would go a long ways. That would really help me out. So those are the things of like, <clears throat> there's like a difference depending on how the proximity is, it feels like for me. I don't know if it should. Well, I think there's the no pro point, the no proximity like the proximity determines your opportunity to actually help and make any real difference. But it's like, what happens if 5,000 people knock on your door over the next three weeks? Well, in a perfect world, you wouldn't be the only door being knocked on and there should be 5,000 doors okay. being knocked on. You can all help. So this is, this is, that's, is a, so I think it's real that uh, there's no amount of suffering in the world that like love and charity cannot conquer. And again, going back to if, if everyone wasn't such a hypocrite, a lot of these issues would be solved. I know, I know that you're going to be a hypocrite just because everybody else is, are you going to stay in the city of happiness because everybody else is, or are you willing to walk away? Well, I would like to think that I am not as much of a hypocrite in these ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be happy to share my, my tax returns and my, my bank records with people if they want to see what Rachel and I are doing with our money, right? And I would say the people that have my worldview get criticized as being uncaring and unloving. But if you look at the percentage of 
people that share my worldview, the average percentage that they actually give to help other people is far, far higher than the average percentage of people that have a differing worldview. So, I mean, that certainly doesn't mean that everything that I do is perfect, but I also think there, there's a difference in me saying, you know, with, with my current finances saying, and we're going to eat caviar and drink the most expensive champagne. We are going to consume $5,000 at one meal versus buying a watch that's $5,000 that would hypothetically hold its value that push came to shove. If I felt inclined to then give that money to someone else that in need, then I would still have those assets. Another interesting thing is that $5,000 doesn't go away. You're actually giving it to a restaurant owner, the the shipping company that shipped the caviar, right? The farmer of the fish, uh, the waiter or waitress that's in that restaurant. Well, that's the old criticism of someone that buys a hundred million dollar yacht. Oh, you wasted a hundred million dollars. No, you employed a hundred million dollars worth of labor and materials. But then you say like, what is money, right? It's Mm -hmm. more, it's just an incentive structure for people to be productive, right? And it's a store of value. You're saying, like, well, now we're putting all these people's labor towards what? To building a super yacht for one person to enjoy. Is that really what people should be doing on this earth? And uh, I don't know the answer to that, but that, that would be yeah, like- But, the, but they're like making money so they can choose what they want to spend their money on to enjoy. It won't be a yacht. Also, their, their labor is going towards some productive means beyond just beyond just gaining income would be mm-hmm. the argument. Would be the argument. I'm just saying that's, that is the argument. And it's like, is your, is your labor going towards building housing for the poor or is it building a missile to go bomb somebody? You get paid $60,000 a year either way, right? Median income in the US. But what is the outcome of your labor? And that's where the criticism of that yacht would come from. Anyways, uh, man, should you what, what should you take for a deposit? <laughs> We're almost- the thing. You know, I know people that take no deposits, people that take big deposits. Uh, what are your thoughts? What, what Should you take a deposit? Yes or no? And how much of a deposit should you take? You guys don't take a deposit, do you? We do. We're not idiots. Oh, you do? Yeah, we're not. Oh, who- if you don't who, take a deposit, you're... Who was it that doesn't take a deposit? I thought... Does Slavic? Does Slavic take a deposit? He does not take a deposit. And maybe that's who I was... Maybe that's who I was talking to. No, so we take we take a deposit. We take a $500 deposit. And here's why. Simply to get them to stop shopping. When I was running that last company, we, we did no deposit and I would make sales. And if production team wasn't keeping up with them, communicating regularly, they would just keep shopping. And they would obviously always find someone that was cheaper. And then they would forget about how awesome it was to have me at their house and how trusting... or how uh how trusted i i was and we'd lose we'd lose a handful of jobs other thing you could look at it as uh people typically will exchange money for value mm-hmm. i will give you money and i expect something in return i typically do not give things of value to people without receiving compensation as mm-hmm. okay there's this line that people quote a lot of things from batman where the joker says if you're good at something don't do it for free mm-hmm. you people say that mm-hmm. I'm like, is that really who you want to be quoting in life? <laughs> Why are you telling me this? This is like, that's not a role model you should be seeking after. Well, you're good at something. You should never do it for free. I'm like, why are you quoting a bat? This is not, don't do that. Anyways, so you are giving, what you're giving them is a reserve schedule. And there's sure. a real cost for you. It's not like, hey, I'm just going to take your money. I'm going to take your money. It's costing me nothing. It costs you money to reserve your schedule. Oftentimes, the de- determining factor in whether you book a job or not is do you have the availability, right? And if you don't have the availability, guess what? You still paid for that appointment. You still mm-hmm. paid for that lead. You still paid for that salesperson to get out there through the aggregate of their salary. So there's a cost to reserving the schedule and I'm going to receive compensation for reserving that schedule. Yeah. Well, not to mention if you are offering uh, additional services, like we offer a color consultation. Yep. So they, they say yes, they make their you deposit. You charge for the color 
consultation on top? No, I pay for it. Okay. So I, I incur a direct cost for any customer. Yeah, that's that's, another, that's yes. another good argument for deposits yeah. is to cover direct costs incurred. So mm -hmm. oftentimes if you use a litmus test, it'd be like materials should definitely be in there and then whatever soft costs sure. that you have. So if I, yeah, if I didn't, if I didn't take a deposit and then we send the color consult consultant out and then they change their mind and hire someone else, what recourse do I have to get any sort of money back for the, what I've spent? Right. Like or you order the paint ahead of time. Yeah. Right. We don't, we don't do that, but yeah. So yeah, you should take a deposit. Uh, what deposit amount do you guys take? We do 500 dollars, 500 dollars for a deposit. That's really interesting. I know you guys. Oh, that's right. You guys do like a third, right? I don't even know what we do. I'd have to look at our proposals, but it's at least I a third. It's, it's probably 35% yeah. would be my guess. Yeah. We, the reason why we do it is so I don't, what if it's, what if it's a thousand dollar job? Well, so it's, I mean, it's negotiable, right? If it's, if it's a small job or if it's or a thousand dollar job, if, if you let me finish a thought, if it's a small job, sometimes we choose not to take a deposit at all or whatever. If it's a thousand dollars and $500 deposit, it is what it is. Then they, they can choose to pay it or not, uh, choose to hire us or not. If it's a big project, anything over $10,000, uh, I believe our con my contract says something about we can ask for progress payments or whatever. But if I were going to do that, I would lay that out in the estimate and say, you know, $500 deposit due upon acceptance. Maybe twenty five percent due at power washing. Another twenty five percent when it's halfway done. I the know, rest is so much work. It is a lot of work. Well, I we have we have a couple of big projects coming up for condo exteriors, and I still just did the five hundred dollar deposit. One's a forty seven thousand dollar job. One's a sixty three thousand dollar job. It's it's a risk that I have to take on because I'm going to pay for all the materials, all the labor, and everything, trusting that we're going to do a good enough job that they'll eventually. But that's also one of the ways I'm able to win those jobs at a slightly higher price than others because other companies are asking for a fifty percent down payment. So now the the condo board they feel like they're risking thirty grand, and this guy could potentially just skirt town and never be seen again. Yeah. Or we can pay a little extra to Ellis and painting, just have this little tiny deposit and he takes all the financial risk until it's done. So yeah. we don't, I don't like, I don't need the cash flow to pay for materials and labor. Not really. You are paying for the cash flow, but you don't need it. Right. That's interesting. Cool. I'd say, yeah. so like, uh, there are arguments for and against, right? I like, I love the arguments against putting, taking deposit or taking a small deposit, right? Why would I need a deposit? I'm, I'm very confident. I'm going to deliver on the project. I'm going to get mm -hmm. the, I mean, I mean, so like, uh, the only reason I take a big deposit is, is if I thought I, you weren't going to pay. Mm -hmm. Very confident you're gonna pay, right? So you can make those arguments too. I like the I like the rationalization of costs incurred. If it was a very long job, you'd take progress payments because you're incurring labor costs. Mm -hmm. If it's like a week or less, then just get paid for the materials and the admin overhead to sustain a business, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe the sales and marketing as well, right? You could because you've incurred all these costs to get this job on the schedule, procure the materials, and you need all that deposit before the guys start before you start incurring labor costs. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe it's based off of like a payroll cycle. So like, oh, you know, if the job's gonna take more than two weeks, guess what? I gotta pay the guys. Where do you think that money comes from? I gotta take mm -hmm. a progress payment. So there's that that rationalization as well that I think helps uh determine the amount of the deposit. But then there's then there's like what is the cost of capital, right? So you run a large business, you have a large amount of dollars on the books, and let's say you're taking a 10% deposit, you're trying to decide 10% deposit or 50% deposit. You don't need the cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. But you would have cash flow if you took 50%. And what would you do with that cash flow? You could invest it in the market. You can invest in different things and get a return on that cash. Yeah, but the problem is you and your buddies are the only ones that do that. Everyone else is just going to leave the money in their account like me. All of capital, we will we, we'll take your money and invest <laughs> it in real estate. Yeah. It's called a syndicate fund. Like, so I understand in principle, in theory, yeah. what you're saying. You're going to have a lot of cash on hand. And one of the bigger problems you're likely going to have in your life is what do I do with this cash? Mm -hmm. Do I buy a boat? Do I buy two boats? No. Now it becomes like, I need to get a return on this cash. 
And so that's going to necessitate you becoming more of an investor outside of your business, whether you're an investor in your business or not, you're going to need to become a sophisticated investor and you start to understand the cost of capital at the time value of money. And that will start to swing your, your impetus, what your deposits are. I understand. But this, this is pure, a purely intellectual conversation because you said earlier that more people run a hundred miles than run $5 million businesses. And so whether you take a deposit or not, you know, and you're, and you're, you're weighing that decision on what you're going to be doing with your cash use have sitting in your account. Most people are not going to be investing in anyway. It's a very hypothetical. What if we all recycled our aluminum cans? <laughs> the lottery of Babylon. The lottery of Babylon is a short story. I'll put this in the link as well. About four and a half pages. Once again, really gets to uh, what level of autonomy do we have? Surfprep.com. You know how much role, how much does chance play into our lives? Mm -hmm. uh, what do we, what, what can we ultimately control versus not control? It's a fictional story. Once again, you know your your lot in life. You know your fate, your status. Everything is determined through a lottery by mm -hmm. chance. What are your thoughts? Uh, do you believe in predestination? I do. Yeah, so do I. I'm so a I don't. So first of all, <laughs> Arminianism, uh, get out of here. Calvinism is where it's at. I think we're probably on the same page. I don't really believe in chance. If if you ask me whether I believe in destiny, I guess the answer would be yes, simply because of my faith. Right. I, I just believe that we were created. And our path was is known way way before we were born, and uh, every thought that we've ever had is already is already known. So I don't believe in chance. I think that everything happens for a reason. That's how my life operates. I don't know if that's how your life operates. So the successes you've had in the different spheres of your life, would you say that's uh, that's been your own doing, or that's just happened because you won the lottery? Um, I don't think it's from winning the lottery. I think that we are all provided opportunities, and if you have the right mindset to be um, aware. <laughs> of those opportunities when they come around and also be willing to take advantage of those opportunities. It is, I, nothing is given to me. Business I have, the wife I have, finding Mark, he's, none of, none of that was given to me, but the opportunities were presented. And I think that I had the right mindset to take advantage of it. What do you think? So it's like a level of agency to accept the path of is that is it really is it really like predestination then if your agency determines the path to you? Well, this is the great question. And that's why I always I always go back and forth with predestination because ultimately I think I believe in free will, but do I really? Because if every thought and every step that we are ever gonna take is already known, can we really deviate from that path? And it's not really free will. That's an interesting thought. So I think you're you're basing this off of like a biblical yeah. concept of like every thought. This is is this from this is from scripture. Yeah. Every thought is known, every step known. So what's interesting for me when I start getting into like scripture or theological thoughts, I just have an acceptance that's beyond my understanding at times. Yes. So it's probably both. It's probably like yes. Every, everything is known, right? Every step I'm going to take is already known. It's also, on, I have a level of agency there. It's like, well, that seems paradoxical, Jason. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I have a very like uh, human brain. <laughs> and this is how I understand. My, my, in my understanding, those things too could not connect. But whenever I get into theological land, it's kind of like, well, some things are going to be on, beyond my understanding. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of believe in both. So I believe in predestination and autonomously, autonomous, autonomously, uh, so like there's like macro predestination with micro autonomous agency, right? So I will okay. tell you like, uh, I'm pretty confident that the world will end. Uh, everyone will be forced to take on the mark of the beast if they want to partake in uh, the marketplace. Crazy multiple eyed things coming out of the skies and like fire chariots. That's going to happen. How it leads up to that is up to us as humanity, right? Do we live, get to live on heaven on earth? Uh, do we, you know, are the, all the children going to be in the city of happiness, you know, being tortured? 
and everybody lives there? Or do we walk away? Does Brad, does Brad buy a Rolex or help the widow that knocks on his door? <laughs> Those are all things we have choices over. But ultimately, there's these macro things that are set in place. Not too dissimilar from one of my favorite science fiction uh, series called The Foundation Series by Isaac Asimov. It talks about this concept of there are these macro events that are set in place that are just inevitable. If you set this, if you set the board in a certain way, Entropy is going to guide it towards a certain conclusion. Similar to geopolitics, similar to if you've ever played Risk, uh, it's kind of like, well, what do you think is going to happen when you put 10 people on the edge of the of the bordering country? Some things it's just like, well, here's these two countries. There's one water source. They have different religions. Let's see how this plays out. I wonder what's going to mm-hmm. happen in 30 years, right? There's no wondering, right? I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Now, what happens in the sports game, you know, that those two countries have leading up to it, That who that's, that's not a macro control thing. It's kind of, there's, in my mind, there's a both around my, macro and micro. And then there's also an acceptance of it's both. And I don't understand why. That's where I, that's where I end up too, is like, yeah, I don't really understand. I, that's why I haven't come down on a, uh, a firm stance on some of that stuff. Cause I don't think it ultimately matters. It just is what it is. It is what it is. Got time for one more. So going from mm-hmm. zero to something is really, really hard. And most people can't yeah. do it. And that's why founders uh, and entrepreneurs are rewarded so highly in uh, the society. If there are entrepreneurs and founders everywhere, the law of supply and demand, they would not get compensated as well. But if you're mm-hmm. a founder, you get this thing called equity. And now you kind of own, you run the business, you own the business. You can now hire people or bring people in to help you scale. They're both hard. One, I think it's just harder to get from zero to one because there aren't as many people that do it. Now I'm talking about like, but no, then I'd say like zero to one is not actually a business. You're just self-employed. So it's not that hard. So you're not actually an entrepreneur. You're just a self-employed person. Not just because those are great things to, to be. That is a great mm-hmm. thing to be i'd be more interested in like the question of like going from zero to three or going from three to ten. Zero to one it's like was that six painters seven painters so you've got like a little crew of people yeah but it's pretty hard for a lot of guys to get to it's not hard for uh it is hard very very challenging for a lot of people to, but the people that are trying to do that are painters who have been forced to start a business because there's no for good sure. companies to go work for right so yeah. it's hard for painters to grow to a million dollar business it's not hard for you know business talent well, I, I mean, I, obviously I hope that that zero to one is the hardest because that didn't feel, you know, without sounding too arrogant, it's kind of like feel, uh, what didn't feel very hard is, is like having a newborn. Is that the hardest? Is it the terrible twos? Is it teenage, preteen, the teenage years when they go off to college? Like what is the hardest? Yeah. And they're all hard in their different ways. I think the hardest transition for me is going to be from the, we were at last year to 3 million. So you I'm feel not, like this year is going to be the challenging year? I mean, it definitely feels the most challenging right now based on my stress level and anxiety. Yeah. You know, we're just, the, things are progressing in the right direction, but I'm sure and putting out a lot of cash yeah. and make, making a lot of investments, trusting that they will actually pay off. Um, I think that if we can do that effectively and we get to like two and a half million, three million this year, it's going to give me more confidence that I can take it then to four and a half or five. But yeah. I just don't know. I mean, this year could be crash and burn year for me. Right. It's the biggest. Yeah. It could be like the most, uh, the most, most of those feelings. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So we did, we sold almost one, little over 1.7, almost 1.8 million in our first 12 months. And it d- just didn't feel that hard, but was I able to do it just because like we had the cash and I can sell and I had my wife helping me? Or is it because like, maybe I actually kind of know what I'm doing and can grow a business. Right. Yeah. We're, we're going to find out. You'll find out this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's cool that you're trying to get past that first stage of, I'm having a lot of success based off of just novel inputs, mm-hmm. right? So I have unique A players and I can make a lot of cash doing that. But I want to grow and build a more stable business business in the long term. And mm-hmm. that's a, that's a novel pursuit. It's a worthwhile pursuit. I hope so. I think so. I mean, I'm just, you, you showed me kind of a roadmap. One gallon at a time. Two gallons right. at a time. I have one more topic. Sex versus gender. Biological have a gender? Sex oh. versus <laughs> gender is a social construct.
All right. Anything else you want to hit on or plug before we uh, hang up? I think we hit all of them. Good chatting with you, my man. I think you're one of my best out of state friends. Oh, that's really nice. And I'm, I believe that I am one of your best friends. Yes, for sure. All right, Brad. Well, this was fun. Glad we got to hang out and have these conversations. We'll see if anybody enjoys these. And uh, until next time, make sure that you are always holding the brush by the handle. There we go. You got there. Appreciate you, buddy. Yep. That was like a Michael Scott. uh, (laughs) Sometimes I start talking and I just don't know where I'm going. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go home and take a nap.